Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. If it could be said that our ancient forefathers, Israel, had a creed, it would have been what is called the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It was a confession of the unity of God, that he is one, singular. It was a confession of the uniqueness of God, that he is the only one, there is no other. It was a confession of God's relationship to Israel, that he alone was the God of Israel, and there could be no others for them. Thus, the church, the spiritual Israel and receiver of Israel's promises through Christ, continues to hold to this creed dearly, even as we have had more about who the Lord is revealed to us in the New Testament. Its echoes are heard in the Athanasian Creed, which we hear once a year on Trinity Sunday. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. In our epistle this morning from St. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it seems that St. Paul had the Shema in mind when he was writing this short yet masterful section, which Martin Luther called a sermon in its own right. The ones fill that last half of these six verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here, Paul uses the number one seven times the number of completion in Hebrew thought, as he writes about our salvation. He names all three persons of the most holy and blessed Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, while confessing their perfect unity, one God. This morning we witnessed the baptism of our newest sister, Finley, as she was born again in the name of God according to Christ's command. And so we will focus on these words from our epistle this morning. One Lord. In context, it is clear that Paul is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it may seem a strange thing to say. Of course, there is only one Jesus. Of course, he is the only Lord. But in St. Paul's day, and for the first 300 or so years of the church's history, there were many others who claimed this title, including the emperor of Rome. To confess that Caesar was Lord would be to deny that Jesus is Lord, for there is one Lord. These competing claims over who the Lord is have not been a problem for many of us here today and for many generations. But now we see more and more competing claims in our midst, including in our local area. You will find those that say that the title of Lord belongs to Krishna. Others say it belongs to Buddha. 
But Paul reminds us here to confess in the face of competing claims that there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. But that is not the only competing claims about who the Lord is. There are even competing claims about who Jesus is himself. And it's important for us to confess with Paul that there is one Lord. For example, the Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus is called the Son of God, but he's really a lesser being than the Father. He's not so much a capital G God, but a lowercase g God. The Mormons teach that Jesus is the Son of God, but that's only a title of preeminence because to the Mormons, all humans and even all spirits, including angels and demons, are the literal sons and daughters of God through a heavenly mother. Compare this with the teaching of Jesus that he is the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, not a creation of God, but of the same nature and substance equal to the Father, one with him, yet distinct in a way because the Son is begotten, but the Father is unbegotten. The Son is unique. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, as the Gospel according to St. John says. It is important to know who the one Lord is, because false lords, false Jesuses, do not save. The true Jesus, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, conceived in time of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and so is true God and true man. He alone saves. He alone is Lord and Savior, the only one. The only one who is free of original sin and the only one who committed no sin in his life. Because he was divine, he was able to take the sins of the world upon himself and bear them. And he was able to die in the place of all sinners on the cross as a sacrifice for sins of boundless and, and eternal worth. A man could only die for himself, but the Lord Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was able to die for the world. As St. Paul wrote in Romans, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all, so one act of righteousness led to the justification and life for all men. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This one is Jesus, our Lord. And all those who believe in him share in him and his benefits, which he won for us on the cross. He alone could save us. We could not save ourselves. No one could. No one could atone for their own sin so that God's wrath would be appeased for themselves or for all. This was done and could only have been done by our Lord Jesus. And so all of us who share alike in this salvation are made members of his one body, the church. As members of this one body who share in this salvation, we ought to deal in all humility and gentleness, with all patience and bearing one another up in love. For each of us is no more worthy or less worthy than another of what we have received from our Lord. None of us is greater than another before God in our justification. So we should not think, brothers and sisters, 
ourselves higher than others because of our piety or how we live out our faith in life, but we should think of others as greater than ourselves because we know the depth of our own sin. We should be gentle with one another when one sins against us, knowing that we have also sinned against others and that both of us have sinned against God. But since God has forgiven us in Christ, in gentleness, we should deal with one another and forgive one another. In the same way, we should be patient with one another, knowing that we're all members of the same one body, and that as one suffers, we all suffer. So we ought to be patient and bear one another's weaknesses in love, and to bear them up before our Father in prayer and by our good works towards them. For we're all members of this one body, and we all share alike in receiving this salvation from our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And this one body, the church holds to one faith. Here we're not talking about the faith which believes, that is, the faith that's often called a confident trust in Christ, but rather we're talking about the faith that is believed, that is, the one true doctrine, one true teaching. During the time of our Lord's ministry, he did not teach multiple bodies of doctrine. He did not teach different teachings to different disciples. He did not say, Peter, this is what you should say, and say a different thing to Jude, saying, this is secret, keep it from him. Rather, the same thing he taught to one, he taught to all. He taught one faith. This faith the disciples passed on when they spread the gospel through their teaching. They also recorded it in their epistles to the various churches. This is what the evangelists also recorded for us in the Holy Gospels. This one faith, one doctrine, is of vital importance for us, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, as we have said before, so I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. There is one faith in the confession of one God, the Father of our the Father, who is over all and through all and in all, and of Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who became man so that he might give to give his life as an offering for the sin of the world on the cross, so that whoever believes this, who trusts in Christ, receives the forgiveness of sins by God's free gift. After Jesus' death, he rose again on the third day, and forty days later he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father as our intercessor and mediator. And he will come again at the end of time to judge the world. And this faith is of the Holy Spirit, who fills all believers, making them members of Christ's body, who works through the word and the sacraments to create and sustain believers in this body, the church. This one faith is summarized in the Apostles' Creed and at our baptisms, just as with Finley this morning, this faith was handed over to us. This one faith, this one teaching, is held by the whole of the Holy Church of God, outside of which none can be saved. This church does not exist of fellowship of outward rights or outward governments. Be clear to know that I'm not saying that only the Lutheran Church Canada is the one true church of God outside of which there is no salvation. No, rather the church is properly the inner fellowship of faith 
and the communion of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in the hearts of all believers. As such, the Church is found throughout the world, and in our epistle, St. Paul tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Since the Holy Church of God consists in the fellowship and unity of the Holy Spirit, in order to maintain the bond of peace, Christians should seek to join themselves to a congregation where they know that this church is present through the outward signs. For where the pure doctrine of the gospel is taught and where the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution and meaning, there one can be sure the church is. For while other things can be attractive to us, such as the myriad of programs that many churches offer now, or even a very good band, the most important reason to join a church is that the pure doctrine is present and the sacraments are rightly administered. For there can be certain, for one can be certain that the Holy Church is the one body of Christ, and there it is present. And there the one spirit is working through these means to keep us in the one faith until death. Yes, this one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who works in the members of the one body, has been given to us in the one baptism, the baptism which grants the forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Through the waters of holy baptism, the Spirit works to create faith, so that the great promises which God has given in regards to baptism may be received. In baptism, we see one being born again, so that they may have God as their Father. We see one being brought safely through the waters while their sin is drowned and dies. We see in vivid detail how our salvation is not our work, but solely the work and power of God through the Holy Spirit for the sake of Christ Jesus. In baptism, we all receive the same gift, no matter our age, our station, or our past. This one baptism brings us into the sacramental life of the church. For while baptism forgives us our sins, and the guilt of original sin, the stain of original sin, still remains in us. It still creates in us sinful desires. It still weakens us and still fights against the new man who was created by God and which lives in us. In the sacramental life of the church, we see Christ in action to forgive our sins, strengthen our faith, and to sanctify us. Through these acts, as visible signs, Christ is working, and from them we receive the consolation of the gospel. When the devil whispers to us that we are beyond forgiveness, or he tempts us to rely on ourselves and our own strength, we see in holy absolution how God desires to forgive our sins for Christ's sake, because Jesus has taken our sins upon himself and paid their debt. In our confession beforehand, we confess our own weakness, our own guilt, our own unworthiness. Yet we hear how, by faith, God forgives us. And we hear from another that our sins are forgiven. And because of the promise of God made in the Gospel of John, we can be just as certain that this has happened in heaven as it has happened to us. When we're tempted to doubt the love of God in a world so full of sin and evil, where there is suffering on every hand, we see in the sacrament of the altar how God has given his only Son to die for us on the cross. 
For in the same we receive the very body and blood of Christ, who offered up himself for us. We receive the fruit of the tree of life, the cross, which gives forgiveness, life, and salvation to all who eat and drink in faith. Indeed, we receive Christ himself, who makes his home in us, so that we are united to him and through him to one another who share in this meal and this faith. We can even look back on our baptism daily to be reminded of our identity in Christ and how we are a new creation, a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of God, which will be revealed on the last day. We remember this through daily repentance, through sorrow over our sin, and trust that for Jesus' sake, because he has died for our sins and rose for our justification, that God forgives our sins, and as a seal of this, he has united us to the very same death and resurrection of Jesus in our baptism. Indeed, this one baptism is a sign and seal of our calling and our one hope. For all who have shared in this have been called in Christ, called to a new life and a higher calling than any other we can find on earth. Yet this calling is not lived out in isolation. We do not go on our own way to live as hermits, nor do we wall ourselves off in closed communities that none can enter. Rather, we live out this high calling in our everyday callings, which we call vocation. Our calling in Christ is lived out where we are, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as children, as employers or employees, as civic leaders, as citizens, as preacher and as hearers. All of these callings are high and noble because God has called us to them, and because the Holy Spirit works in and through us in them. Thus, through our individual callings, we live out our common call in Christ, so that no matter what our vocation is, we live out our vocations with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing one another up in love so that through them we may help and serve our neighbor until our common hope of the resurrection is fulfilled. God grant this to us all, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <clears throat>